Welcome to the first episode of Notoriously Episcopalian. My name is Kelly Hutlow, and I'm the deacon at the Abbey. On October 14th, I had a chance to sit down with a cup of coffee and talk with our bishop, Key Sloan, about his new book, Jabbik, that's available online and at the Cathedral Church of the Advent Bookstore. We also had some time to talk about the role of the church in the ever-changing world of the 21st century. What follows is a two-part interview. Episode 1 focuses on our discussion of Key's book, and then Episode 2 moves on to looking at the role of the Episcopal Church in responding to the ever-changing world in the 21st century. I hope you enjoy. I have described myself as that before, as being notoriously Episcopalian, and I think you approved of that once, and so that's why... I still do. I still approve of that. I ran with it, so... Um, and it made sense to start off talking about Notoriously Episcopalian with talking to a bishop, your formal title being the Right Reverend John McKee Sloan, the 11th Bishop of Alabama, um, who so happens to have written a book entitled... Jabbok. Jabbok, okay. Um, and so I thought it would be kind of fun to talk to you about your book and... You have begun venturing out in the world um, promoting your book. How has that gone? It doesn't, it doesn't come naturally to me to promote myself or my book. Um, I think that has something to do with my understanding of being notoriously Episcopal. Um, we are, and I am, fairly timid about things that we love deeply. And I think we've... Um, find ourselves in a world full of push and shove and we have decided that we're not going to push and we're not going to shove and, and let the people who are more uh, aggressive with that sort of thing take the stage. And I think, I think our time is coming for us to say it's our stage. Uh, I uh, went to a bookstore in Tupelo, Mississippi, the birthplace of Elvis Presley, where my brother lives and had a book signing event there. Uh, it was nice to see old friends from my days in Mississippi. Um, and it was a, a good number of people who came and didn't kind of form a line that went out the door and around the corner or anything, but it was kind of a steady dribble of, of people, which was great. And then the next night I went to Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi. If you're ever in Oxford, you need to go buy Square Books. It's a great, great bookstore. Um, I was in Oxford before I came to Huntsville, so I had some friends there, and, and it was neat to do that event as well. There are other signings coming up. I'm really determined that I, I'm not going to use my position as the bishop to peddle books. I, I don't want to go around with a box of books in my back seat and <laughs> sell them to people. You can get them, the book on Amazon, you can get it at the Cathedral Bookstore, there'll be other places that you can get it. Um, and I'm glad to sign a book for anybody at any time, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hawking my book when I go from church to church. I don't think it's immoral, it's just tacky. I have read your book. Did you like it? I did. I did like it. I actually finished it. I had to read it kind of back and forth because I had some other stuff and other reading going along. And so I like did it in four kind of big sessions. And when I got to the end, I have to admit, like I did not leave my front porch. Like I had to get through the end of the book 
to, to see how it all worked out. Um, uh, but no, I did really enjoy it. And of course, it is the story of a young man growing up in Mississippi, which has echoes of familiarity for folks that have, have heard you talk. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like a silly question, or, or somewhat of a silly question, but I have been told when you talk to someone that writes a book, a good question to ask is what inspired them to write the book? When I was in high school and college growing up in Mississippi, I worked at the diocesan summer camp there, Camp Bratton Green. There was a man there, there was a man there, his name was Jimmy Lee Washington. Um, I have pictures of him in my office. He um, was in his 60s then, and he um, grew up right there in Way, Mississippi. He had gone off to World War II and served in France and come back. He was the man who took out the trash and cut the grass and could, could paint and fix anything for a little while. Um, I think of Jim Lee as being unburdened by education, but a wise man in his own way. And he had a wonderful way of talking. And for some reason, he took me under his wing and uh, we fished a lot, and I went to his home and had um, uh, several meals, um, possum and raccoon, um, and, and chicken and squirrel and other things. When I went to seminary, I was 22 years old, and it seemed to me that the professors were intent on making sure that we all understood that they were much smarter than we were, and they would use words that they knew full well we didn't know. So the, the professor would talk about eschatological soteriology, and I would write it all down, you know, try to figure out how to spell it right, and then explain it to myself, so I you know, translate it to myself. But after a while, I got to thinking, how would I say that to Jimmy Lee? And then much more entertaining than that. How would Jimmy Lee say that to me? Jimmy Lee is the one who told me, um, God loves you more than your mom. Jimmy Lee said, ain't nobody no better than you, and you ain't no better than nobody else. And I, I think that's just gospel truth. So as sort of a verbal doodle, I started writing down how Jimmy Lee would say things. And it expanded to daydreaming, because you have a lot of time to daydream when you're in seminary, because the alternative is to listen to the professor. Sort of daydreaming, if Jimmy Lee came to the seminary, what would he say? What would he, how would he address the seminary? That's the oldest part of the book. So I wrote that when I was in seminary in 78 or 79, and the, the doodle just sort of stayed with me. I, I never meant for it to be a book. I was just writing down kind of what I thought was a fun story. After a while, I figured out that I'm never going to write a systematic theology, but if I am ever going to write down what I believe, what I think is important, it, it would be in something like this, in, in a fiction. So I began to write, how did Jimmy Lee in the book Jake, 
how did Jake come to the seminary? And then I began to write what happened after that. So that's, that's how the, the book was written. In about 2001, I had a sabbatical uh, and brought the story to an end. It's hard to end the story. Um, and then I showed it to some friends of mine, and they said, wow, this is really good. You need to have this published. So I buckled up my courage and um, sent it to a publishing house, and they waited for a long time and wrote me back and said, we enjoyed reading this. This is not the kind of thing that we publish, but good luck finding a publishing home. That happened three or four times. Um, somewhere in there, I was selected Bishop Suffragan. Shortly after that, my daughter, who was 14 at the time, uh, finally convinced me to get on Facebook. I was reluctant. I just don't need more ways for people to be in touch with me. And I prefer to talk to people in person. But finally, she's, she convinced me that I was a dinosaur and I needed to be on Facebook. And so I opened a Facebook page or whatever, however you say that. And a bunch of people wanted to be my friends. Well, some of them I knew, and that was natural enough, and some of them I didn't know, and that was kind of an odd thing to be friends with people I'd never met before. And one of the people that wanted to be my friends was a, a woman whose name was Phyllis Tickle. I'd never heard of Phyllis Tickle. I didn't know who that was. I just thought it was funny that this woman's name was Phyllis Tickle. <laughs> and so I made her my friend on Facebook, and then a few months later, we had an event at St. Luke's here in Birmingham, and the featured speaker was Phyllis Dickel. And I thought, oh, how funny. I have a friend on Facebook whose name is also Phyllis Dickel. I'm a little slow on the uptake sometimes. Finally, I put it all together and realized that the Phyllis Dickel, who has written several books and who was the editor, the religion editor for Publishers Weekly, was my friend on Facebook, and so I sent her a message and said, I have become a blight upon the land. I am an unpublished writer. You're coming to Birmingham. I've written this book. Would you look at it and tell me what I should do? She was very gracious, and she asked me to print it out and send it to her, which I did. Um, and then the night before the event at St. Luke's, the parish leadership training event, she and I went and had a drink, and um, she was very complimentary and very supportive and encouraging and said, what you need to do is find an agent. And she contacted several people and sent them the book. And uh, that's how I got an agent. And she's the one who, after that, kind of negotiated with different publishing houses. So I'm kind of an accidental author. Through the book and for folks that read the book, there is this, this way that you keep Jake's voice going in the book through these letters. How did you settle on using that? I mean, because to me that was kind of a really interesting part of the book because it allows the tone to change so much between... Buddy's thinking in his head, and then we get this letter from 
from Jake that drops in. How did you, uh, how did you figure out that part of the doodle? I really wanted to capture Jimmy Lee's voice. Um, I didn't want it to be Huckleberry Finn and, and Jim on the raft. And want it to be sort of demeaning or disrespectful. But, but the way Jimmy Lee talked um, just meant so much to me. I, I wanted to have a different voice when he wrote that would be more influenced by his reading of the King James Version of the Bible. Jimmy Lee didn't know how to read. And so Jake was more, not more educated, but more lettered than Jimmy Lee. Um, I wanted to make, it was important to me to catch the voices of the people that I include in the book. Captain Jimmy, who's on the riverboat, um, is from South Louisiana, and I wanted him to have his unique way of speaking. I wanted Jake to have his unique way of speaking. But I wanted to write a little bit differently from that. Um, the letters, sort of as a literary device, uh, I wanted the conversation, I guess the reason that I have the letters in the book is because I wanted the conversation between Jake and Buddy would start when, Jet, when Buddy is eight after Buddy graduates from high school and goes off to college, I needed for that conversation to continue. Um, and so that's where the letters came in. In the book, I think of Jake as being a, a literate, literary man. Mm -hmm. Although, um, he sp spoke very differently than he wrote. And in the Jake's address to the seminary. He has it all written out. And he's very carefully to, careful to get his spelling right and his punctuation right. And then he added things um, to the written notes. Um, so I wanted to kind of draw a distinction between the way he wrote and the way he spoke. You said you you never thought that you would write a book of systematic theology, but if this was going to be something, you know, if this was going to be a statement of your theology, it would come out in kind of this story. Um, so how do you how do you as the writer, not you, I guess, as the bishop, but you as the writer, how do you want folks to approach this book? You know, I mean. Do you want them to set aside the fact that it's written by Bishop Sloan? I'm not even sure if that's on the back of the cover. I think, it, yes, you are the right reverend on the back. Um, and just read it for story? Or um, is there a message that you're hoping that's, that comes through that's in addition to even just the story and the characters? When I started writing the book, I wanted to talk about my friend Jimmy Lee. I also wanted to retell the story of Jacob the Patriarch, who, who 
struggled with God and with other people and with himself and held on. Um, it became sort of early on a way for me to include stories that I like to tell and, and to organize my own thoughts. In that way, it was very sort of therapeutic. When you're 23 or 4 or 5 years old and a seminarian, you can say whatever you want. I was ordained when I was 25. I kept kind of working away. There were long stretches of time when I didn't write anything and didn't think about it, but every once in a while I would bring it back out and look at it. Um, when you're a young priest, you can kind of say whatever you want to. Eventually I got to be... Uh, not so young priest. And then you need to start paying attention because people assume that you're speaking for the church. Um, and then by the time it was published, I'm a bishop in the church and, and uh, it's a, a, an appropriate assumption. It is an appropriate assumption that I'm speaking for the church. Um, the book used to be, used to be bigger. There are two chapters that are left out altogether, um, and there are some things that I kind of needed to tone down. Um, maybe if this ever gets to be a, a, a big thing, this book, and after I retire, I'll, I'll publish the unabridged version and let people <laughs> be offended. Um, I wanted very much I don't want people to buy this book because the bishop wrote it um, I don't I don't believe that I speak for all of the Episcopalians in Alabama or uh, all the members of the Episcopal Church at all. Um, but here, here's a story told by one guy who's, who struggles with God and with people and with himself, like we all do. And I'm doing the best I can to kind of hang on and prevail. didn't want a cover photo of myself and that's not vanity I just don't want it to be about me the front cover does not say the right reverend bishop of Alabama all that stuff it, it just says Keith Sloan and, and when I'm uh, privileged to sign a copy I write Keith Sloan because that's who wrote the book And, and, and I asked, and I'll, I'll kind of back up and give the thought behind that question. Um, and this is not me making direct comparisons. But so we, we have had Christian theology as told through fiction before. I mean, particularly we have a, a history up in the Anglican Church. C.S. Lewis 
the Chronicles of Narnia, um, you know, screw tape letters. He's the he's the first one that comes to mind. Flannery O'Connor in her writings, um, dealing a lot with with Catholic theology and, w and with her faith, um, to where you get these works of fiction, but that carry with them this theological message or something like that. Um, so I think it's interesting that you wrote a story. And not necessarily a Christian story, though the the characters that are involved are people of faith, um, you know. But it's not something that would have to necessarily be, you know, at the Christian bookstore or in the religion section. Um, and I don't think they even yeah. See, you just got straight up fiction. You didn't even get like religious fiction. Um, and so that's kind of where I was talk, thinking about you know, are you wanting people just to approach it as the story, or is to also approach it as because you got, I mean, a lot of theology in there, too. Uh, I hope so. Yeah. I think Mr. Lewis probably did a better job of writing a story that you could read just for the, the for the drama of the story, and then come back and, and at a later time realize the theological undertones of that. I don't know if my undertones are so deeply submerged as Mr. Lewis's. I mean, it's fairly blatant. In fact, part of the reason that the book is shorter than it used to be is because it got kind of preachy toward the middle and I had to leave some of that <laughs> stuff out. <laughs> um, it's a gentle story. Uh, there's, not a, there's not a chase scene. There's no um, sex. There's no, nobody shoots anybody. Um, it's not a murder mystery. Um, the problem that I had sending it out to publishers at the beginning was not that they didn't like the book. Almost everybody liked it. The problem was that it didn't have a niche to fit into. Um, it's not, it doesn't fit in with other works of religious fiction. Um, it's not a devotional, it's not a shoot 'em up it's not a mystery, it's, it's, um, it's, I hope, a believable story of an old man who had lost his faith and finds it again in a relationship with a young boy who grows up and, and essentially inherits the faith um, and finds his call in life. So I'm particularly interested now knowing that this started back in seminary and got finished up really before you became a bishop, right? You'd kind of finished the story or you it came, came to the end of the story. Came to the end of the story. Um, Let me say a word about the storytelling and then yeah. you can come back to that. Um, I grew up in a family of storytellers, and it's just how we talk. The trick about telling a story, one of the tricks is, you want to catch the person on the front end. So I'm going to tell you a story about um, working on the riverboat in the Mississippi River before I went to seminary. Well, you need to know what year it was and when I was there and kind of was it a big boat or a small boat or, or what it was like. Um, and to tell you that, I would need to tell you about 
Captain Jimmy and his life story and, and Huey and Mo and where they come from and and so you say I'm gonna start my story right here, but you have to go back a few steps to say, here's how we got here. And then you tell the story and whatever happens happens. And at the end of it, you can say the end, but there are always somebody who says, and then what happened? Where is Pee Wee and Mo now? What happened to Captain Jimmy? It's hard to start a story, and it's hard to end a story. Um, my wife Tana has been listening to me tell stories for a long, long time, and you know, she's very patient. Um, one time she said, "You need to start every story with I was born on a Sunday, and then go from there." <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I didn't finish the book in 2001, but I, I brought the story to an end. And then, there's a lot of work yet to be done. Um, you kind of have to chip away all the stuff that doesn't really belong to the story. There were wonderful stories, I thought, stories that I like anyway, in there that I didn't include because they didn't contribute to the narrative. Also, when you're writing, a, writing something that's long on the computer, you don't really know how long it is. So when you print it out for the first time, you think, oh my gosh, it's a lot of paper. <laughs> then you need to go back and say, well, you know, what can we kind of prune away? How did writing the book and, or writing the story and editing the book and getting it all together, you know, you, you have the opportunity to just about every Sunday stand up and address a crowd of people in a sermon. Um, and for those that have perhaps heard you give some sermons, there's certainly, you can hear that echo in the book. Um, how did this story help you in becoming the clergy person, the bishop that you are? I mean, was this a working out in fear and trembling with your own faith and theology that's coming through here? Or um, did you find that it helped you in your plight of now traveling around the diocese every Sunday um, and addressing a different congregation on bishops' visitations? Um. When I was in seminary, we were given assignments to preach, and you could preach an expository sermon, you could preach an, preach an exegetical sermon. There were several categories of sermons, and so it came my time to preach to the little preaching group, and I told a story about the time that my brother went to New York City and went up on the Empire State Building and brought me back a jar of air. My brother thought that was kind of a funny thing to do. I thought it was profound that I had a, a, a jar of New York City air. Growing up in Mississippi, you don't have a lot of exposure to New York City. And, and so the sermon was about odd sacraments, that, that there are different things that are outward and visible signs. Um, and my whole preaching group thought that was a swell sermon, and the professor said, you know, enjoy the sermon, that was very good. That's not the kind of sermon we're supposed to be preaching. We're supposed to be preaching an expository sermon. And my answer was, that's just how I talk. It's always been the way I talk. It's hard to talk otherwise. Um, I've been very fortunate for a long time to have people patient enough to listen me talk. Um, I've tried to have fun with it. Um, when you are a 
student, um, you become accustomed to being bored. The only thing worse than being bored is being the person who's doing the boring. Um, I'm just determined that I'm, even if I don't have anything to say, I'm going to have fun saying it. Um, and, and stories are sort of um, the gift I have to share. Um, telling a story out loud is way different from writing a story. So there was some discipline in, in writing things down. I'm working now on the second book, the sequel, and, and including some stories that I love to tell and, and realizing that they're not written down anywhere. I've never written that story down at all. Some of these stories I've been telling for 30 years and I've never written them down. So it's easy to say them. It's easy for me to say them and, and take some work to, to be really careful about what you say when you write them down. When we get serious about what we believe, people pretty quickly direct us to a book of theology or the Bible. Um, something that meant something to them at some point. I almost always direct people to something that's fictional. Um, because I think I find the truth in fiction more quickly than I find the truth in um, more factual prose. I'll almost always suggest to people that they read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, or Byzantium by Stephen Lawhead. There are a bunch of books to recommend. Um, Henry Parsley, my predecessor, was, was very knowledgeable about, is very knowledgeable about poetry and would share poetry from time to time. One of the things that he said was that, I think Emily Dickinson said, Tell me the truth, but tell it slant. And I think the slant that is most agreeable to me is in a story. Much of the Bible is stories. We are much concerned um, about the, the facts of the story. Can you go find a mountain somewhere in Russia or Turkey or somewhere and find the 4,000-year-old remains of an ark where Noah and two animals of every kind landed. Um, the truth of a good story should not be limited by the facts. My grandfather used to say that any story worth repeating is worth improving upon a little bit. And I think that's true. Uh, because it's the truth of the story that carries when Jesus wanted to teach his friends about the kingdom of God, he could have gone into a long theological um, essay. 
maybe he did and they just didn't write that down. But what they remembered, what touched them was the kingdom of God is like a man who had a hundred sheep and one of them got lost. The kingdom of God is like a woman who had ten coins and, and she couldn't find one. There's stories, parables. Not about actual people. Um, it doesn't matter what was the man's name on the way to Jericho. <clears throat> uh, it doesn't matter that that didn't actually happen. It's a story told to make a point, to point to a truth. Um, and I think the best stories do point to a truth. So that's, that's what I'm hoping to do, is to point to the truth as I see it in a story that's readable and, and 